listening to an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel, Kelowna. For more information about our church, please visit harvestkelowna.ca. Take your Bibles and turn to 1 John, the book of 1 John. We're continuing to go through this um, verse by verse. If you don't have a Bible, the ushers are coming forward. They will have some Bibles for you to just raise your hand, and they would be happy to give you a Bible. We believe God's Word changes and transforms our lives, and, and, uh, and so we just encourage you to have an open uh, Bible there or else on your uh, gadget that you may have, your uh, mobile phone or iPad, to follow along in God's Word. And we're going to be looking at 1 John chapter 2 today as we work through this book. And as it, this book is all about having an authentic faith and what describes to us what an authentic, authentic faith in Jesus Christ looks like. And today we're going to look at just two verses here, the first two verses of chapter 2. And then we're going to take and we're going to spend time together in worship and in the Lord's Supper will be made available for, for, um, for uh, believers in Christ to partake together in that at the end of the service. And when it comes to the Lord's Supper, the Apostle Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 11, he says, let us personally examine ourselves that we need to examine our hearts and, and, then, and so we're not eating or drinking the bread and the cup and drinking and eating judgment potentially upon ourselves. And, and, and Paul says that for anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment upon himself. And so the word of God calls us to examine our lives. And the word of God that we're going to be looking at today, it shines a flashlight on our hearts, on our lives about the gospel and what Christ has done. And has that taken place in our lives? And so today we're going to be asking ourselves three very, very important questions. And, and encourage you to write these down and you'll see them on the screen and be encouraging you to have these because these are important questions we need to be asking ourselves not just today but every day. These are our vital kind of little check marks that we need to be examining our hearts in and, and, and doing that introspective look. And so the first question is, in my life is there a deepening love for God and for others? In my life, is there a deepening love for God and for others? Look at how John the Apostle starts here in, in chapter 2. In verse 1, he says, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And it's commonly believed that John, when he's writing this, was near the end of his life. He was in his, his mid to late 80s, maybe even into his 90s. And yet he is living a life with such clarity and a purpose and a passion for Jesus. He's lived a pretty crazy life up until this time. I mean, crazy and amazing things have taken place. From being a fisherman called out to be a disciple of Jesus, from being called along with his brother, they were literally called the sons of thunder, ready and, and, and willing to call down fire on, from heaven heaven on, on some people who were kind of making their lives a little miserable. And, and we see this guy who is, is this fiery, thundery kind of just ready to call down fire down on people to a guy who's being transformed. And we see a, a heart of love and compassion for people. Later on, we would see him in the Gospels jockeying for position along with his brother James wanting to sit next to Jesus when Jesus would set up his earthly kingdom. They even got their mother to help them on that one. And, 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 and he watched so many things happen. He watched Judas betray Jesus, he watched his brother or heard the news of his brother. We don't know if he witnessed his brother being martyred for his faith. The Apostle John knew hurt in his life. He knew pain. He knew conflict. He knew betrayal. 
Yet his love and his passion for God, instead of diminishing or becoming what we may call or what he later on calls in the book of Revelation, lukewarm, we see someone who's, who's on fire and is passionate for the, law, for the Lord and a deepening love for God and a deepening love for others. Is this evident in our own lives? Here we see in 1 John, and, and we see this when, by the words that he uses, he's calling them my little children. I'm writing these things. And here he is, a loving father, grandfather type figure, and, and he's writing with this pastoral heart as he's caring for his readers. And, and it's so clear here, and throughout the book of John, he, it's like a, a father, a grandfather getting down on his knees and, and, and with the children or the grandchildren and, and just saying, my little children, please. And, and he's pleading, pleading with them throughout the book, please get this, please understand this, I'm writing this. And he goes on to say, so that you will not sin. And so we see his heart for God. We see a heart for people. He doesn't want anyone to miss it. He doesn't want anyone to be led astray. He doesn't want to see anyone get led into false teaching or, or a false salvation. He desires an authentic faith. And this is what this series is all about, about having authentic faith in Jesus Christ. And it is marked by a, a life of following and loving Jesus, a, a life of obedience to the word of God, and a life of love. It's going to be evidenced in our relationships. It's going to be evidenced in, in how we love and care for and forgive and walk with one another. He desires for his readers to have the deepest and the most intimate relationship with God this side of heaven and for our lives to be characterized with joy. As I said last week, so oftentimes it seems that for believers in Christ, it seems like we were maybe baptized in lemon juice. We're just kind of sour. We can be negative. We can be down. We can be discouraged. If there's anyone on the face of this earth who should be filled with joy, it should be believers in Christ. Because of what Christ has done in our lives and because of the future that we have, no matter how things turn out here, it doesn't matter. In the end, we win. In the end, we're with him. And here we see his passion for God. We see his passion for people. What would people say about your life? What would they say you're passionate about? What would they say is something that you could say maybe rattles your chain, gets you excited is it the desire for comfort and security, for money, for position, for reputation or a career? Maybe it's sports. Maybe something that rattles your chain and gets you kind of passionate or bad calls in hockey. I'm a little upset about that right now. You know, are those things that, that really get us going? Is, is, that, is that where our focus is in our life? Is it in the games that we play? Is it in our bodies? It's in how we look. It's in the clothes we wear. Is it in our possessions or education? What is it that's yanking your chain today? What is it that is, is, is the passion of your life? It's evident. Is it evident to you? Maybe we need to ask those around us. Hey, what, what would you say I'm passionate about? Now, these things I've listed off, they're not wrong. But if we're truly followers of Christ, he is to be first and foremost in our lives. He told us, he says, seek first the kingdom of God. And the next thing he says, and his righteousness. That's what we're going to be talking about today. Are we seeking the kingdom of God? Are we seeking his righteousness? That's what we are to be seeking first and foremost. And he says, and all these other things. He wants us to enjoy life. He wants us to enjoy his creation and exercise and hobbies and, and games and sports and, and activities and relationships. But it all flows first and foremost out of seeking him first, seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. What are you seeking today? What are we passionate about? Is there a deepening passion for God in your life and for others? Only you can truly answer that question. And John's writing, he's pleading, he's like, don't miss this. Don't settle for casual, lukewarm faith. 
Don't settle for an intellectual faith. Oh, you may have it all down. You may have the doctrines. You may have the theology. You may have the understanding. You may have the years behind you of being in church and learning all of the, the lessons and, and knowing all the stories. But is it being lived out in your life? Is there the fruitfulness of your life? And so... We must examine, and sadly and so dangerously, folks, please listen up. This is so crucial we understand this. But sadly and so dangerously, we can easily think that simply praying the sinner's prayer is enough. That that's all that's necessary. So often here in conversation, people say, well, they prayed the prayer. They prayed the prayer. They asked Jesus into their life. Their life reflects nothing of that of a Christ follower. But they prayed the prayer. And instead of holding on to that, we need to be holding on to them in prayer and holding on that God would do a greater and a deeper and a more clarifying work in a person's life because simply just saying some words doesn't mean anything. Talk is cheap. It's a response of the heart. I would venture to guess that there are countless thousands of people in our city, perhaps even within church walls. I know, in fact, in church, churches itself, Thousands in our city, in our region, hundreds of thousands in our nations, millions around the world of people who prayed the sinner's prayer at summer camp, at, in church, at an altar call. When the pastor said, repeat these words, and, you, and, and they were repeated. Maybe it happened across the coffee table, maybe at a crusade, or at the end of a TV show where, where there was an opportunity to receive Christ and, and said the words. It's not the prayer that saves, it's not the words, but it's the posture of our heart. Is there repentance? Is there, is there that faith, that, that turning away from our old life and, and turning, doing a 180 and walking the way that Jesus would want us to walk, that he is first, that we are seeking him first and foremost in our lives above all things? That is the place that we come to. That is the place we need to be examining. See, it is the repentance and faith behind the prayer that lay hold of that salvation. The words are important, but more important is, is the faith and, 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 and the repentance of the heart in there. And that's something that you grow in. That is something that you continue to walk in. You're not going to have it all figured out, but, but is there that hunger for the word? Is there that hunger in our lives to, to want to live for Christ? It's a, it's a process. It's, a, it, it's step by step. And so we see that, that a genuine faith that's authentic, authenticated in our lives through a posture of surrender and obedience and, and fruitfulness that reveals itself as fruit over time. One of the clearest signs that we are growing as believers, as we are growing in our grace, is not that we no longer sin, but that we are more aware of how much sin continues to remain and pervades in our heart, and it pushes us to grace. It pushes us to God. And last week we saw in chapter 1 that as, talking about as we walk in the light, as he is in the light, and, and, and we understand that we are to walk in the light, not walk in darkness. Now walking in the light understands that, that God is holy, and, and you can listen to last week's sermon if you didn't hear that, we have to understand God's holiness. It, it's being honest about those dark areas in our lives, and not just the visible outward actions of sinfulness, but, but the inner thoughts and the inner motivation of the heart, the lust, the greed, the pride, the self-righteousness, the, the bitterness, the unforgiveness, it's in turning away from those things. It's making war on those in our lives. And this is a wonderful quote from John Owens that we have here. Here's a question that he asked this old pastor, theologian. Do you mortify? Do you make it your daily work? Be always as it willest you live. Cease not a day from this work. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. 
That last part is just so powerful. Either we are killing sin in our life or else it's going to have an effect of, of, of killing and destroying us little by little. And, and so this is something we make war on this in our lives. And, and we ask the Holy Spirit to shine his light. Remember I had the flashlight last week and asking the Holy Spirit to shine his light because when the light shines in, it, it reveals the darkness. It reveals the things that, that, that are dishonoring to God. And what happens when we deal with that, when, it's, it, when we ask Jesus to forgive us and we are cleansed, we are forgiven and we are cleansed and that opens our relationship up in a higher and a newer and a greater level of enjoyment of our God and, and with others. First John 1 John 1.9, it tells us, that's one of, the, one of the powerful verses that we need to all have memorized that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Amen, all we make these things right with God if we've offended God in our sin, if we have sinned and, and, and we've hurt others, we, we make those things right. And when we do that, God forgives. It's done. It's cleansed. There's restoration of relationship and that leads to joy. Now, sadly, some, I think, um, we have been there or perhaps are even there. We can easily take 1 John 1, 9 and think of it as a license to sin. I know, I've been there. I remember in, in college, it's the first time I heard this statement and I kind of latched onto it for a little while. I kind of thought, hey, that's true, that's good. Based on 1 John 1, 9, that, you know, it's easier to get forgiveness than permission sometimes, right? You know, and so you think, well, I know this is wrong, but I will be forgiven, you know, or God will forgive me based on 1 John 1, 9. I know that, that I shouldn't be doing this. I know it's not a big deal. You know, everyone's doing it. We'll justify it. It won't hurt anyone. It's just, just a little area. It's my little guilty pleasure. It, it, it's just, you know, yeah, it may not be quite a right pursuit, but it's not a bad thing. And, and so we can justify it. And, and this, this can cause us to, 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 to give us a license, so to speak, to sin or, or a cheap grace or, or a sloppy agape I heard this past week. And, 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 and it's like, it's okay, God will forgive me. You know, I'll pull out the First John 1, 9 card. You know, I'm a sinner saved by grace. Yes, that's true. And, 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 and that's such a wonderful statement, but I would love... If you ever, maybe that's a, that's a line you've used in your life and maybe continue to use it, but add one more thing to that. Well, yes, we are sinners saved by grace, pursuing holiness, pursuing Christ-likeness, that we're just not satisfied to, to just say, well, you know, just a sinner saved by grace. Oh, I did it again. You know, just a sinner saved by grace, but pursuing holiness. And, and this is the, the movement in our heart. This is where we are desiring to go. And, and the Apostle Paul, he touched on this in Romans chapter 6, verse 1. When confronting the believer, confronting us, his word does, where we may be tempted to take advantage of God's grace. And he, and he says there in verse 1, and in, in, encourage you to continue to read there, but, but in verse 1 it says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? And the start of verse 2, by no means. We weaken, we, we dilute, we, we, we can make a mockery of the cross when we live with that kind of thinking. He's saying here, I'm writing these things. John the apostle, he's writing these things so you don't sin. Now we can guilt people, you know, sin is bad, 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 bad. We can train ourselves. Some of you are really disciplined and so it's easy for you. I mean, you can follow rules. We can make up rules and regulations and, you know, and, and even then bring down the, the fear of God on people. We can even use the, the, the fear of hell to, to, to scare people when it comes to sin. 
John's not doing that here. What John is doing, he's a loving, fatherly figure in, in their lives that he's writing to there and even for us today, reminding us of the price that was paid for our sins. You see, the hardest thing to sin against is love. Amen? The hardest thing to sin against is love. He, he wants to show us God's love, and that's what he's going to do. Just, just quickly, like in, in a verse and a half virtually, he's showing us the love of God and, and shows us the love and the price that was paid for our sins. And that is the motivation as to why we want to pursue holiness. Not because of rules, not trying to get, kind of get up further and further. No, this is, this is the motivation. It's love. And so I wonder this morning, is there in your life is there in Meldon Lutzer's life a deepening love for God and for others? What are you passionate about? Again, in verse one, my little children, I'm writing to these things so that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. The second question this leads us into, is there a growing humility in my heart, talk, and walk? Is there a growing humility in my heart, talk, and walk? See, we can talk humble. We can, can say all the right stuff. We can even act it. But in my heart, am I pursuing humility? Is there a heart of humility and dependency upon the Lord? This is something beautifully we see here in John's character, and we see this develop and grow over time. But we see it even here in this passage, because as, as he says here, j- just look at the way that he words this. In verse 1, he says, But if anyone does sin, and now he flips it, and he jumps into it as well, he says, We have an advocate with the Father. He's not like, and so if any one of you sins, just remember you have an advocate with the Father. No, he's jumping in there in humility saying, hey, I'm in there too. I'm in need of this. We see a heart of humility. He's saying, this is for me. I need to remember these truths. You see, there's a tendency for us as, as, as Christians, as you've been in the faith for many years or have been in church for many years, pastors, leaders, teachers, over time to kind of start thinking, I've kind of got this. I've got this figured out. I've kind of arrived here. And, 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 you know, I've kind of reached a good and a comfortable place in my faith. And, and what can easily settle in just so quickly, oh, how quickly it comes in, is spiritual pride. Thinking, I've got this figured out. I've got the knowledge. I've got the understanding. I have the years behind me. I have some fruitfulness. I've led a lot of people to the Lord. I've had a great effect on the lives of people. And we look at our struggle with sin as something in the past and not something in the present. And that's such a dangerous place to be. I I grew up listening to great and solid preaching. And I'm so thankful in my life. Just recently, I pulled out this little box of of little cards that that when I was in in grade 11, grade 12, and in my early um, college years, of, of all the sermon notes that I took, wherever I would go and I would hear fantastic preaching and and yet one of the things that oftentimes that, that it kind of left me as I heard these great men of God preach the word of God was that they had somehow, often, sometimes this kind of came across it, and, and it really didn't in their own lives, but this is how you could take it, that the preacher has it figured out. And you people who sin, you people who struggle, you people. 
And I started taking that into the ministry. I remember as a youth pastor and then even as a solo pastor in a, in a, in a small church just outside of Edmonton as, as we were there for a number of years. And it was kind of like a pastor isn't supposed to struggle. A pastor isn't supposed to admit weakness. We are to be strong. We are to be pillars of the faith. People need to look up to us. And on the inside, you're dying. On the inside, you're falling apart. And the Lord had to take me through a, a, a season of brokenness and surrender to realize that, hey, I'm right on the floor. I'm right here. I'm right here with you folks, with those that I'm preaching to. I am you. You are like me that we struggle. And, and this is stuff we're going to work to work through together by the grace of God. And this is the posture that we are to have in our lives. Not, not, not allowing spiritual pride and, and a spiritual background and spiritual knowledge to set in. It's a place of humility that is so desperately needed. James wrote, the stepbrother to Jesus, or the half-brother of Jesus, he wrote in, in James 4.10, humble yourself before the Lord and he will lift you up. We work so hard to get noticed, to, to be exalted, to hear the praise of people. And, and that's the worldly thing that you do. And yet God's word says, do the opposite, get low. And God will exalt you. God will raise you up. God will exalt you. Perhaps not here on this earth we'll get the exaltation that the inner man in us would want, but in one day, and come now notice, he even says here, but if anyone does sin, and the breakdown of, of this word, if, is very important, and, and you can see that there in your scriptures where it says, if any of you does sin. In the Greek, in this sentence, um, the original language here, this sentence weighs heavily on the side of probability. When it's saying, it's really not saying if you sin, it's, it's like, it's when you sin. In the English language, we kind of see is the sin is kind of, you know, kind of conditional. Well, maybe you won't sin, but, but in the Greek language, it's like when you sin. Plus, the rest of Scripture and even later on in the book of John, we see here about the struggle of when we sin. You see, we're not going to be perfect till heaven. And oh, won't that be glory, amen? When you finally be perfect, I mean, can you imagine a day without sinful thoughts, without fear, without anxiety, which is sin? Can you imagine a day without that? A day where we are just in the glory, in the presence of God. Sometimes you go away to a camp or a retreat. You may go away and, and have just an incredible mountaintop experience with God, and then you come back home. And sometimes it hits within seconds of, you know, coming down from the mountain sort of thing. Every day will be the mountaintop in heaven. Every day in the presence of God. Every, oh, amazing, but we're not there yet. And here we see this humility in John. We see this as he is talking about, you know, you sinners. He's not saying you sinners, you sinners. He's saying us sinners. Hey, I'm right here with you. This is the heart of humility. That we recognize that we all stumble in many ways. And here's, here's the heart. I know my sin. I know every lustful thought, every prideful moment. And though I know also that you sin, however, I'm much more aware of how wretched I am. And that's a good thing. Because when we recognize how wretched and, and how sinful we are, it makes us run to the grace of God. Here's the third question. Is the gospel being absorbed into my life daily? 
As I was working on the sermon and, 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 and just seeing um, the, these truths that, that we're going to be digging into even further here in this passage, this word absorbed was just, love that word. It's so, so powerful. Absorb means to engross or engage or to occupy or to fill, to take in all that you can to utilize. And, and, and as I got thinking about that, I kind of thought of, of the example of, of take a sponge, for example, and, and you take this sponge and you, you put it in the water. But first of all, you can just take the sponge and you can just, you know, without anything in it. I got a little ahead of myself here. I mean, that sponge is not being, a little bit of water is being absorbed there by that sponge, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Now, even there's even more of it that's being absorbed by this sponge, but this is just a cheap dollar store sponge. It's not really, you know, like authentic, really good one here, but, you know, I mean, it kind of helps. You know, it, it gets the message across. But a way to, to allow this sponge to get absorbed is by, by getting this water and and, and, and you can take and you can sop so much in here just by massaging the water into this sponge. And, and look how much of that, when, I mean, this thing is just loaded with water now. There's just so much that, that has been absorbed here. And that's just so, so wonderful to be able to see that kind of, you know, absorption take place. Well, in the same way, the question is, has the gospel been absorbed into my life? Is, is the gospel on an ongoing basis being absorbed into my life? And, and encourage you to write down these words. You see them at the bottom of the screen. We need to hear it. We need to hear the gospel. We need to receive the gospel. We need to walk in the gospel. We need to share the gospel. Encourage you to write those down and, and, and because we're going to be just kind of quickly, we're going to be coming to those in, in a little bit. And so when it comes to absorbing ourselves in the gospel, have we heard the gospel? Have we understood it? Have we, are we walking daily in the the gospel, are we receiving it into our lives and, and are we sharing it with others? Hear, receive, walk, and share. And what follows here and what these verses are all about in, in chapter two and in verses one and two, we see a courtroom setting and, and a glorious courtroom setting. And, and most of us can probably think about, um, you know, various court. TVs or, or uh, TV shows or, or movies where there's that dramatic courtroom scene. Now, when you see a picture like this, you, you, you might think of a TV, you know, or, or experience perhaps that you've had, but, um, but in, in virtually every court, every court of law, there's a judge, there's the accused, there's the prosecutor, there's the advocate or the defense attorney, and... Yeah, that, and, and then oftentimes there's, there's others that, that are also there. But these are the main players that you will see in a court of law. My first time in court, <laughs> make it sound like I, I anyways, I, I was just waiting for you to say that. <gasps> Melden was in court, was when I was 15 years old. It was sad. A friend of mine was on trial for manslaughter, for throwing a stone at a younger child, all in fun. One day, a group of kids were playing, and he picked up a rock, and a kid was mouthing him off, and so he picked up a rock and threw it and hit him in the temple, and a few days later, that child died. And so he was on trial for manslaughter. That was a very serious matter. Another time, years later, I ended up in court again, there to witness and be there for a friend who landed some charges against him for improper firearm use. And it was actually kind of a comedy. Well, it wasn't a comedy, but it was a comedy of errors and, and chaos that put him a couple weeks in jail and, and with a record. I mean, it was just one of those things, and yet God, was, God taught him so much in and through that. 
And these are all serious matters. When you go to court, it's a serious matter. And what we're talking about here this morning is a serious matter. It is the most serious courtroom in the, most, in, in the highest court of the universe. It's, it's far bigger than any small claims court, any civic or provincial or federal or even the Supreme Court of Canada. This is the divine heavenly courtroom and folks, the stakes are high. The stakes are high. They are eternal. And look what it says here. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. See, in the divine courtroom, we have God the Father. In Hebrews 12, 23 is just one of the many verses that we see that God is the judge. He is the judge of all. Now, we do often talk, and we talked about this last week, that God is a God of love, and the scriptures are so clear about that, but also that God is light, as we dug in last week, meaning he's holy, he's pure, full of truth. Yes, God is a compassionate God, a forgiving God, but he's also a God of justice and a God of wrath. And God's word calls us to that, to understand that in in Ezekiel 7, you can write that down, Ezekiel 7 or Nahum 1, we see even how God is storing up his wrath. He remembers and he sees everything. Nothing is hidden from him. He's got a ledger and he sees every sin. He sees every wrongdoing on the face of this earth and one day there will be justice. Even when we see criminals, when we see people who are are the epitome of, of pond scum in our society and the things that they have done, no one thing for certain, there will be justice one day. God is a just God. He's also a God of wrath and he's storing up his wrath. He has a holy hatred towards sin. And when it comes to the gospel, we so often talk about God's grace and his mercy and his love and that's so true and and about his forgiveness. But also, folks, this is a matter of divine justice. Justice must be served. God can't disregard his own perfect law and just kind of fluff over our sins. Sometimes people will think that, that, that love triumphs over justice. No, it doesn't. Both love and justice are equally satisfied in the salvation plan. And what we're talking about here that we're digging into is the doctrine of justification, something that is so important that we, we get and that, that, that we experience in order to know Christ. So we have God who is the judge, God of justice, a God of wrath, a God who is looking for justice. And then there's the accuser, the prosecutor. And who is the prosecutor? It's not mentioned here in the text, but we see, it, see him spoken of throughout Scripture. He's the serpent. We see him first in the garden, in the garden of Eden. But he's also mentioned in, in John's letter in, in the book of Revelation, in Revelation 12, 10, that, that, and John calls Satan the accuser of the brethren. He is the one busy, day by day, bringing accusations against us. And he is a hateful prosecutor, crying out to God, relentlessly pounding the bench, pounding the table, asking God for justice, demanding eternal execution because of our sins. And he argues that if God is just and if God is righteous, then there must, he must punish those who have such a list of iniquities as we have. Now you might say, Well, what's the difference between Holy Spirit conviction and Satan's accusations? There's a huge difference. Quickly, we won't take a lot of time to dig into this, but but just know this, that that, um, before you sin, this is how 
the accuser of the brethren works. This is how the devil works in our lives. Before you sin, as he's tempting you to sin in, in different areas, the devil will, will kind of give you those thoughts, put those thoughts in your head, thinking that, go ahead, it's no big deal. You'll get away with it. You can get forgiveness. You're not going to get permission. It's not a big deal. And then right after you sin, it's condemnation. It's, oh, you'll never get away with that one. <laughs> There's no way. You're not getting out. There is no forgiveness. No, no, no. And, and what does it cause us to do? Run and hide. And you see that in Genesis. You see that with Adam and Eve. Oh, come on. It's not a big deal. Just eat from the tree. Come on. Take a bite. It's not a big deal. And then afterwards, oh, shame, shame, shame. And next thing you know, they're, they're hiding, hiding themselves from God. That's, what, that's how the accuser of the brother likes to work. We see this happening today. When the Holy Spirit convicts us of sin and we see that the Holy Spirit does convict us of sin and in John 16 verse 8 we, we see that that is one of the roles of the Holy Spirit. Understand the Holy Spirit will never convict you of sin that's already been covered in the blood of Christ. And if that happens, that's the devil bringing those things to your account to try to make you think that you're not forgiven. The devil accuses in generalities oftentimes, vaguely making us feeling unworthy. You're such a loser. You're not smart. You're not good. You know, if people only knew the real you and, and, and all, he'll, he'll convict and, and he'll accuse us in, in general terms, but the Holy Spirit will convict us specifically. Hey, remember in that conversation that you were having and you were lying? Hey, remember when you became angry there and it wasn't a righteous anger, it was a, a personal anger? Remember when you cheated? Remember in, in, in college when you cheated on that test? And we have opportunity to confess that and to make it right. And, and that's where John, 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and cleanse us. Done, washed, gone. The accuser wants to draw us away from fellowship. You're a loser. If people only knew the real you, the Holy Spirit convicts redemptively to bring us back into relationship with God and with others. And so we have the judge, we have the prosecutor, and then we have the accused. That's you and me. God's word tells us for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. For the wages of sin is death. No one is righteous, no, not one. Folks, this is, this is your courtroom. This is your trial. It's an open and shut case, however, because the plea or, or the verdict is you're guilty. Guilty, guilty, guilty. That is, that is the declaration of any one of us. We are guilty. We have all sinned. We have all fallen short. Guilty is our plea. We may try to even proclaim our innocence or justification, but, but we are guilty. This is our trial. But thanks be to God, there is the defense attorney. There is, as First John here in, in uh, we see we have an advocate. We have an advocate who enters the courtroom. And into the courtroom walks Jesus Christ, the righteous. Underline the word righteous, that's so important. The word righteous is so important. Because if he was sinful, he'd be right there with us holding up this sign as well. Guilty, guilty, guilty. But because he is righteous, because he came to this earth and was without sin... He is the proper advocate. He is one who has not sinned. And so 
We have Jesus Christ, the righteous, the perfect one, as our advocate. The word advocate means the one who comes alongside to help. It's like a lawyer. It's where we see this legal term here in this courtroom that we see here in this scene. And when all of the accusations have been labeled against us, he rises and he does not argue for our innocence. He doesn't. But he argues on the work of the cross. He argues the work that he did on the cross. In verse 2, it says, he is the propitiation for our sins. Propitiation means, it's a very important word. It carries the idea of a satisfying payment. A satisfying payment. Jesus' death on the cross was a satisfied God's holiness. It satisfied God's holiness. And, and, and as the wrath of God was poured out on Jesus, the wrath that we deserved was poured out on him. Jesus took it upon himself. On the cross, every ounce of the penalty that we deserved was poured out onto Jesus. The judgment and wrath that we deserved was put upon his own son. And so when the father, the judge, looks at us and he sees Jesus and he sees the cross as the full and satisfying payment for the forgiveness of our sins, the verdict is no longer guilty, guilty, guilty. It is forgiven, forgiven. We are free because of his shed blood for us. We are no longer under the, the bondage of sin. When God looks at us, he sees righteousness. He sees holiness. He sees purity, not because of us, but because of what's been imputed to us through the work of Christ. Something changes. We go from guilty to forgiven. Pastor Robbie, in a little sermon excerpt that I saw from Harvest um, Oakville, he said, God's love is not defined when my life is easy. God's life is defined in this way, that I was a sinner subject to God's wrath, and I was freed by Jesus. That God demonstrated his love for us in this, that while we are yet sinners, Christ died for us. Dear church, this is the gospel. This is so important that we know this, that we understand this judicial um, scene that, that has taken place here, that we stand in a courtroom before a holy and a pure God and we have Satan yelling his accusations towards us and against us and, and he has that solid case against us but because of Jesus, the righteous comes in and as he takes our sin... This is called the great exchange as, as we see defined in, or expressed in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 21. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that we in him might become the righteousness of God. He sees us as righteous because of Christ. And what we've been talking about this morning here, as I mentioned, it's the doctrine of justification, which is the instantaneous legal act of God in which he takes our sins where he thinks of our sins as forgiven and Christ's righteousness as belonging now to us. And he declares to us righteous in his sight. And folks, this is what, this is the message we ought to, to hear and understand the gospel, but it's not enough just to have it here and to understand that and say, okay, I get it. There's the courtroom scene and, and I see my sins. I see the accuser. I, I, I see all of this. We have to do something about it. We must personally respond and receive it. And then daily we are to be walking in this truth. And the question is, are you 
Have you received the gospel? Do you, have you understood what we're talking about? Have you received this into your own life? It's not just enough to know it, but to receive it. Have you received this gift? It's that free gift. Jesus' death on the cross provided the way. In Acts 2.38, Peter said, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And the first thing we ought to do, the first thing here is, is where we repent of our sins. It says repent and be baptized, but to repent is to change direction, is to change our mind. It's that 180. We've been living for ourselves and now we are living for Christ. It's surrendering our lives to him, following the direction that he has, having him first in our lives. And then it says be baptized. That's also one of the marks, that's one of the steps of obedience. We'll get into that more next week. But it's making him Savior and Lord. And you can't believe in Christ without repenting of your sins. It's not just receiving this free gift, but it's, it, it's, it's confessing these sins. It's, it's turning from them and turning towards Christ. Do you know something amazing? Jesus Christ has never lost a case. Never has. Never lost a case that he's been asked to try. And in the cases that Jesus has been asked to try, the devil loses every time. Have you asked Jesus to try your case? There is no sin greater than Jesus' ability to forgive. We don't have to live under the weight of our sin. And I wondered even today, perhaps some of you are struggling under the weight and the pressure of the past, of past sin. You've confessed it a hundred times. You've gotten on your knees before God and, and, and you've confessed it and you've, you've asked him to take the sin away and, and the guilt and, and everything that comes from that. Folks, today is the day to honor the work that Christ has done for you and walk in that freedom of forgiveness and be free. If you have confessed your sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Walk in that forgiveness. And so we must receive this good news into our lives initially and continually. And here's where this example with the sponge works again. It's not just floating around with the gospel. It's daily being submerged in the truth of the gospel and the word of God. This is where our God time is so important that we spend time just, just in the word and, and seeing his love for us. That, that All that Christ has done, it, it's spending time in worship and, and it's just being absorbed with him throughout the day. And, and, and as the day goes, what happens? We get drained out. We get worn out. We get tired. And that's why daily we just need to keep absorbing ourselves and allow the gospel truth, the word of God to penetrate our lives. This is what it means to be walking in the light, is, is walking and being absorbed in the gospel in this way. Our motivation is love. Why do we do it? Because of what we have seen taking place in this courtroom. We've come into the courtroom heads low, dejected, knowing that we've sinned, knowing that we have fallen short, and in walks Jesus Christ the righteous and we're forgiven. And righteousness has been accredited to our account and that is a cause for joy. And when we join together with other brothers and sisters who are walking in the light in that way, there is a joy and there's a closeness that you can have in no other relationships here on this earth. You're not going to get it at the bar. You're not going to get it at work. You're not going to get it at, 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 at retreats or conventions in the same way that you'll have in the body of Christ. The closeness, the love, the unity that we share together. Have you embraced this message personally? And if so, are you walking in this truth daily? We need to be. 
That is a beautiful mark in a way of, of an authentic faith and a, of a growing faith. And then that last part we see there, this is a message to share. Verse 2, he is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. This is a message that the whole world needs to hear. We just don't bottle up. We just don't keep it inside this room. We, we take and we live the gospel in our lives. We live this life of humility. We live this life of serving others, looking to make others greater than ourselves. We look for opportunities to share the gospel with others. Remember, in Acts 4.12, salvation is found in no one else, no other name under heaven by which we are saved. So I wonder these three questions as we come to the Lord's Supper here this, this morning. If we can just go back to those questions. Is there a deepening love for God and for others in your life? Only you can answer that. If the band can come at this time as well. Is there a deepening love for God and for others? Is there a growing humility in my heart, in my talk, and in my walk? And is the gospel being absorbed into my life daily? Have I heard the gospel? Have I understood it? I think you've heard it today. Have you received it into your life personally? Are you walking in it daily? Are you sharing with others openly and regularly? This is one of the marks of a follower of Christ, of an authentic faith. And so the band is going to sing a song that, that just expresses what we've been talking about here today, and I encourage you to spend some time just examining your own heart in light of these questions we've looked at here this morning.